Take your Bibles and turn it to Hosea chapter number 2. All right. Just to give you a little bit of uh, background information, so where we're at in this passage makes a little bit of sense. Uh, Hosea was written uh, not too terribly long before the northern kingdom was actually going to be taken into exile. And it was actually a time of relative uh, affluence, like things were doing okay. Um, you might look at it like, uh, let's say, United States of America, 2018. I hesitate to say, you know, this year, last year, I, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, things were a little bit better off, and uh, they were feeling, you know, fairly secure in where they were at with things. But then God tells them that they were being unfaithful, and he uses Hosea, and he actually tells Hosea to marry a prostitute, to picture the unfaithfulness that Israel had with God. And you start to see this cycle in the book of Hosea where God talks about unfaithfulness. You see a demand for repentance. You see God delaying punishment for a little bit, then a promise of punishment and restoration. And it's kind of this cycle that we'll see. And this is where it starts us off with in a chapter number two. It says, Say ye unto my brethren, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. Let's go ahead and go to Lord in prayer. God, I uh, thank you for this opportunity again just to, um, God, just proclaim your message, Lord, and I pray that um, hearts would be opened. I pray you give me clarity of speech and that we just already be humble before you, be willing to surrender to what you have for us. You know, I pray. Amen. So we see a plead of repentance. Uh, Israel had entered into an agreement with God. That was one of a covenant relationship. Now we think about a covenant relationship, we think, what is that? Well, it's very similar to a contract with one key difference. There's a relational aspect to it. So a, a covenant isn't something that is just cold and calculated where you do this and you get that. There's something that's required is along the lines of faithfulness and that of love, which is why we talk about the covenant of marriage today. We don't just say that you're signing a piece of paper, and so now you've got this cold calculated legal contract between the two of you, there's something that's more than to that. There's a pledge of faithfulness. There's a pledge of love between the two parties. But God said that they had wandered away, and they were actually committing spiritual adultery. And ironically, there was actually a physical element to this, because Israel was going to these temples to worship false gods, and there was temple prostitutes in these locations, and so they thought that by fornicating with these prostitutes, that the fertility God would bless them. And so they're going to these false gods to do these things, to get their blessings from other sources besides God. They're leaving God behind. They kind of forget about who he is. And God says that this is spiritual. It's adultery. And while I've never personal, personally experienced it, I've seen the consequences of what adultery looks like in our lives here in this world. And I hope you've never had to experience it, but from what I've observed, that the person who's usually been faithful in marriage, that when they find that their partner has not been faithful, there's feelings of anger, jealousy, rage, sorrow, betrayal. And God is trying to communicate with Israel to, his creature, to, these, to us creatures how God feels about sin about their spiritual adultery. And so he brings up an illustration 
that I think most people can kind of relate to in the sense is you would realize how devastating that would be and what kind of anger and what kind of feelings that that would produce. So Hosea is telling them they need to plead. He's pleading for them for repentance. And, and today we are the bride of Christ. We are the church. We've also entered into a covenant agreement with God. And there are times in our lives where we can be unfaithful to God. It doesn't mean that we've lost our salvation. It doesn't mean that he's going to cast us away. But before I go into the rest of this, I want you to keep in mind the theme of this message is God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people. Because we're going to go through a lot of things that seem really dark and really gloomy. But all the while we're doing this, I want you to keep in mind that while God says this, this is never coming from a heart of just to sheer judgment. He's not up in heaven with a rod and just waiting to smash someone. Everything we go through in this passage, we see that God is doing out of a heart of, yes, justice, but also mercy. He's trying to restore his people. So we see the promise of punishment. Verse number three says, Lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. Later in the book of Hosea, Israel will be called Ephraim. And Hosea, if you read through it, uses all kinds of wordplay. Like almost every, almost every name has some kind of meaning or some reason God is using it. And I, I don't think that God is obviously not using this by any kind of mistake. It's very obviously on purpose that the name Ephraim means fruitful. And Ephraim was the prominent tribe in the northern kingdom. And he's telling them that you who were called fruitful are going to be dry. You're going to be turned into a wilderness. You're going to be like desert places. You were called fruitful. This image of lust, lust, green, water, fruit. You're going to die of thirst. So we see that there's pending judgment. He says the indictment is in verse number five, because their mother hath played the harlot. She hath conceived, uh, she that hath conceived them hath both shamefully, or hath done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. We're going to get into this a little bit later, but God's charge against them was essentially they were going after other gods to find the blessings that God had given them. So we see a judgment then that comes from a heart of mercy and justice. We see restraint. It says, therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her pass, and she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then was it better with me than now. So God is telling them that because you've been unfaithful, he said, I'm going to let you pursue your lovers. You're going to go after them, but you're not going to find success. I'm going to restrain any kind of blessing that they could give you. Because while he might have let them do it, he was not going to let them find fulfillment in it. And so we see kind of almost an act of one, judgment, but also of mercy too. Because they weren't sinning as bad as they possibly could be sinning. Because God was restraining them. But on the flip side, it's very ironic, and we'll get into this a little bit more later as well too, is that the way they were trying to pursue blessings was a guaranteed way to get a curse. Because when they entered into the covenant agreement with God, after they were delivered out of Egypt, God tells them, basically, you obey me and I'll bless you. You disobey me 
and I'm going to curse you. And so they're disobeying God, and so the very thing they're trying to do isn't going to bring success. It actually guarantees that there is going to be failure. And so then he goes on to remind them of the source of their blessings. It says in verse number 8, it's a very sad verse. It says, For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. A little bit of historical context of where Israel is at and where they came from makes a story make a lot more sense. They were in bondage for a long time in Egypt, for over 400 years. And God delivers them out of Egypt, away from a king that was really oppressing them, and also away from idols. And he gives them like a huge military victory, something they could have never done on their own. They overcome the most powerful military might on earth, not because of anything they did, but because God drowns them in the Red Sea. He provides for them, and everything he does is simply because of his grace. They haven't actually done anything to earn this, and God even tells them this. Hey, look, this didn't happen because I think you're extra special above any other people on the earth. In fact, it's not because you're greater. It is because I made a promise to one of your forefathers, Abraham, that I'd give you a people. And so he did this really in spite of who they are. And we see that even while this is happening, they're grumbling and complaining. But then they get to a point where God makes that first covenant arrangement with them. He tells them, look at everything I've done for you. If you follow me, if you're faithful, if you love me, I'll bless you. It's like, but if you disobey me, then it's going to bring a curse. And then even right after that, there's like this history of them just, they keep on disobeying God. And so we see this cycle happen over and over again. We see it before they enter the land to take the promised land that God had promised them. But then we also see it taking place even after the battle, there's just this covenant renewal over and over again. Like, hey guys, remember where your blessings come from. It comes from me. I am your God. But I also want you to think about where they were historically, because sometimes I think we look at Israel as these people a long time ago, and we look at them as, as just a story. Not like they had any real context or any real environment, or that they were actually a real people. But the truth is, is that they were. They came from a land in Egypt that had the Nile River. And the Nile River would regularly provide for them the crops that they needed and the food they had. Now, of course, they would have attributed it to gods, false gods. And while they were being oppressed, they were under a military might. And so what God does is he, he pulls them out of this, and he says, you're going to be going into a land that doesn't have that river. You're going to be dependent upon seasonal rains. There's a little bit more fear there, because it's true that while rivers can dry up on occasion, the Nile's pretty faithful— but seasonal rains, not so much. It's not like today. You know, we have a drought in America, and the corn doesn't grow, and the price of cornflakes goes up, but we don't die. Back then, very different story. If there was a drought, nations could perish. And so they're told, you're going to go into a land, and there's a people in this land, and they worship Baal, and they worship Asherah. One's a storm god, and one's a fertility god. And don't follow them. It seems like it's kind of been working for the people of the land that are up there. You know, they've had relative success, but you can't trust them. You have to trust me. He also says, you're going to be going into a land that is a small piece of real estate that is usually for most of their history anyway, would be between two battling superpowers. And it was very unfortunate that that piece of land that they would want to go through was the land that they were going to live in. But what does God tell them? He says, well, what would we do? What would come intuitive for us if we're going to move into that land? We'd build our military. 
we'd fortify our cities, we'd make sure that no one could get in. But God specifically tells them, don't multiply horses, don't multiply chariots. He says, if you follow me, I'll give you the provision that you need yearly. You'll see your seasonal rains, you'll reap your harvest. If you follow me, you won't have need to worry about your military. Don't multiply horses, don't multiply chariots, because I'm the God of this world, and no military might will harm you. You will rest at ease. But we come to this point in the passage where the truth is, they've already forgotten where the true blessings have come from. And we see it happen to them over and over and over again. They, in fact, will start to worship the false gods they were told not to worship. They multiply chariots. They multiply horses. God also told them to not to make contractual agreements with other countries for protection. And they did that over and over again. They would make like some kind of covenant agreement with either Assyria or some other empire at the time for protection, which is something God told them not to do because what they wanted is something that we all want today, and that is an insurance policy. We want to put our faith in the things we think will deliver us, and this is what they were doing. And how often do we see the means and the ends, but we forget about the source of the blessing? And this is where we're at. And like I tell you, as a church today, we have promises that are given to us by God. The Bible tells us that we can have a peace that passes understanding. But often we don't seek that from the Lord. He says that we can have victory over sins and the power of the old nature— but we are guilty of what we find in Galatians where it says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? So we trust Christ by faith to get a new life and a new nature. But then for some reason after that, instead of resting in the grace of God and his promises, then we try to do things in our own strength. We want to see fruit in our lives and treasure that can be stored up in heaven. But we don't follow what Paul says when he works. He says that he strives according to the energy that powerfully is at work within him. So we want to claim the promises, but we don't want to go to the true source. And can I tell you that even your motives matter? Because there are some people who will want, they want the fruit of it, they want the promises, but they don't want the God that gives them. Even in the Old Testament in Joshua 24, it says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And we see this again repeated in the New Testament as well, too. And Jesus also says something very similar. He says that one day people will worship him in spirit and in truth. So, again, a covenant relationship isn't just something that's cold and contractual. There is something about faithfulness and something about love that is involved. So God is not calling us, okay, you're stepping into some cold legal agreement. He says, I'm going to provide for you, but you have to love me. You have to follow me. Faithfully, and even Jesus attests to the words of Deuteronomy 6.4, the Bible, or the Hebrew Shema, where it says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And yet, how many times as a church do we seek the blessings over the God who provides them? We conflate the two. We start to worship the things that we have, and we build our bank accounts, and we, uh, we put our trust in the resources that we've done. And can I tell you that God has never promised us any kind of material blessing in the sense that some people will say that, well, the Bible makes it clear, and this is a false teaching, that if, if you live well and you do right and you follow God, that you're going to be rich and you're going to have good health. Well, there's a problem then with the Christians we've seen all throughout history 
from right after the time of Christ and even people before the time of Christ to people even now on this world, on our planet, and other countries who are dying because of their faithfulness, suffering persecution because they've been following after God. The Bible doesn't promise that Christians will have success in the sense of material gain, but sometimes it does occur. And fearfully, I think we're a lot of times like Israel where we're seeking the insurance policy, where I'm seeking the things that I think will make me safe, but I forget that it was actually God providing for it all along. But we see that God is ultimately doing this to restore a relationship. But before he can, he has to purge blessings so it makes it very clear who the true God is. Starting at verse number 9, it says, Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof, and my wine in the season thereof, and will recover my wool and my flax given to recover, to cover her nakedness. And now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and none shall deliver her out of my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, and her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts, and I will destroy her vines and her fig trees. Whereof she hath said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. And I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, wherein she burned incense to them. And she decked herself with earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers, and forgot me, saith the Lord. Remember that this was taking place during a time, or during a time that was really, it was affluent. They had wealth. Things were being successful. And think about it today, where if we had a prophet coming from the South, United States of America, well, things are going relatively well. And the guy claims to be a prophet, and he's married to a prostitute, and he's saying, hey, you need to repent. What you're doing to God is like what this prostitute that I married is doing to me. You're being unfaithful. You know, but they're looking around at the things that are going on. It's like, well, we have security. The nations we've invested in, they're, they've, they've been relatively uh, stable, and they've protected us from other invaders from coming in. And we've been going to the temples, and none of us are starving. And so you know, we think we're doing okay. Why? So why should we listen? But he tells them that judgment is coming. And he further says that because you've put your trust in your insurance policies and you forgot who God really is, he says, I'm going to purge your blessings from your life because sometimes the only way God can make it clear to you and to me and to them of who he really is and who the true sources of blessings really, or where the true source of blessings really come from is by removing all the blessings from our lives. Because up to this point, they were conflating where these blessings were coming from. So God says, you're living off the residual blessings that I have given to you, and you're even taking those blessings, and you're offering them to false gods, and then giving them credit for what I've done for you. And he says, if I, he, what he's getting at is, if I keep on blessing you, if you keep on getting these things I provided to you, you're never going to know who the real true God is. You're going to keep on sacrificing. You're going to keep on giving to the false idols, and you're going to keep on giving them credit for the things that I've done. So to make it clear to you who I really am, I'm going to strip your life. You're going to have nothing left, and then you're going to know that your false gods were a fraud. And I think there's sometimes in our life when God's trying to get to our attention, we use that kind of a, I don't know, a cliche frame, but we've gotten to the bottom of the barrel. Because sometimes for God to get our attention, he has to strip things out of our lives because we've been seeking for everything else, but we've not been seeking for him. And so God wants to get your attention. And sometimes that, well, trials aren't always because of punishment, sometimes they are. 
And sometimes God, not out of anger, not necessarily out of hate, but out of love for your life, he doesn't want you to keep on pursuing your sins because, yes, he's not happy with you sinning, but he's also not content with you to remain in your sin. And God will work in the lives of true Christians, and so he will start to purge people's lives, and so they know who the true God is. And when you're at the bottom, when the rug's been pulled out from beneath your feet and you're falling flat on your face, then the only person you have to turn to is God. And sometimes that's what it takes for God to get our attention. You've been worshiping my blessings over me. You've been trusting the blessings that I've been giving over me. And you're even starting to go to other gods. And so because of this, and you're being unfaithful to me, to make it clear who I am, I'm going to take it all away. I'm the one who gave it to you. So now I'm going to take it away. And sometimes we can even see this in church history today as well. It's actually talked about in the Bible, this idea of church discipline. One of the phrases that's used is to deliver them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. It's not that the person has lost their salvation, but sometimes after a church has been involved and they work into someone's, they've been working in someone's life and they've, you know, the idea again of whenever this happens is always a place of wanting to see someone to come to repentance. It's always done out of heart of love. You want to see someone restored because you know what sin does. But sometimes people refuse that as Israel was refusing that. And so what then happens is the church would have to say, fine, okay, that's enough. We need to ask you to leave. And then what happens is Satan has full access to your life. Your own sins will start to judge you. And then when things aren't going well and your life starts falling apart, we think, well, man, that's really cruel. Why would God do that? It's, it's actually being used as a means of grace. Because while God gives punishment, it's always done for a purpose of restoration. And so God will allow you to go through these times and these hard times so you will hit rock bottom so you know who the true God is and you have nothing else to turn to. So he purges their blessing to restore the relationship. Verse 14, it says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her, and I will give her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for the door of hope, and she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. God uses a beautiful, beautiful picture of restoration here. We've already talked about what happened when they came out of the land of Egypt, but because of God's purpose of restoration, he's telling them, I'm going to take you back to the point, a time in your life, where you were in the wilderness. I saved you not because of any merit of your own. But I'm going to strip everything that I've given to you since that point and bring you back to that point as you were during the time of the wilderness. And you're going to be forced to trust me. But he says that he's going to do this. He's like, I'm, I'm going to talk kindly to you. So at this point is God saying, okay, I've got your attention. Now listen to me. I need you to know who I am. I love you. I provided for you. You've left me. And so because of this, and because you're following false lovers, and you're following false, go false gods, this is why everything's been stripped from you. And he's pleading with them, not out of heart of attitude. He says, come back to me. And that is something he's doing in the church as well today. I truly believe that. The Bible says that we see in Hebrews that God chastens his children, those that he loves. Because while it is possible for true Christians to be unfaithful and sometimes even to commit atrocious sins, the God of the Bible says the work he began in us, he will bring to completion. 
that means we're never left alone. And if, you're, if you are claiming to be a Christian, you're living a lifestyle of sin, and judgment hasn't come yet, and it doesn't come in this lifetime, the Bible says that's an indication you're not truly one of his. But if you are, and you are going through this right now, keep in mind God's doing it because he loves you. He wants to restore you and bring you back to himself. Then he reminds them of who he really is. It says, And it shall be in that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me my husband, and thou shalt no more call me Bailey. For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. He explains to them something. This is something that really caught my attention and convicted me deeply. He says that after I deliver you, you're no longer going to call me by the names of your false gods. You're going to call me my husband. They had come to the point in their land and in their lives where they conflated the false gods with the true God. They had become so corrupt in their thinking, they didn't even know who the true God was. In their minds, they were following the true God. This has so much application for Christians today. I've had conversations in the past where Christianity seems to have turned into more of a, a religion of convenience, where church has become more of a, a social club. And I, I remember some of these conversations that I've had with people who profess to be Christians, and one of them telling me that they had been a Christian for, you know, 30, 40, 30, 40 years, a, you know, a follower of Christ, but then they never, ever read their Bible. So I'd have to ask, if you've never read your Bible, then what have you been following? I talked to one guy who was a former co-worker, and uh, he was moving out of state, and he said he was going to be looking for a church. I said, what kind of church are you going to be looking for? He's like, oh, well, uh, the, the, the most important things to me is that they have really good music, and the pastor never preaches about money. I'm like, wow, that's it? I mean, there was no thought there about any kind of idea of, well, you know, is God working there? Is the Bible being preached? Can I grow there? Can my family grow? Is this a place that I can step into and be a part of the work of God? Nothing like that was a concern for this guy. It was solely entertainment, and he never wanted any kind of message about stewardship ever, ever preached. I've had conversations with people who said they were followers of Christ. They made a profession of faith, but then they would also state, well, I don't actually believe everything I read in the Bible. Oh, okay. They said, for us, it's more about, you know, our feelings. What makes us feel good and what makes us, you know, we, we think those are true. I'm like, so then everyone worships a different God because we all have different feelings. So I, how does that work for you? Well, it, it doesn't work. But the idea is we've conflated the God of the Bible with the God we think we want. It's not the God who is. And the truth is, is that in our lives, as Christians, we still have a sin nature to us. And so God is always going to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. And so the idea of, well, I'm just going to accept the things from the God that I want from the God who actually is, you're worshiping a false God. And I think we've come to the point in our churches where as soon as the first sign of inconvenience comes, well, I'm just going to jump ship. I'm no longer really wanting to follow through with this. That's very, it's a far, far cry from what we see in the early church. They took Jesus' words literally of the cost of discipleship, which was to take up your cross and to die. And to follow him. Because being a follower of Christ, while well, is given by the grace of God, and it's not of your own merit, the price of being a disciple, it comes at a cost. It's true Christianity is not a religion of convenience. 
It is a religion of dying to ourselves, but it is also a religion of great blessing because we worship the true God, the source of true blessings. I've seen some people even take it even further, and they've kind of conflated this idea of politics and the church as well, too. And look, I'm not saying it's wrong to be disappointed when you see certain election results. I'm not saying it's wrong to feel bad about some of the things you've seen in the country, but I was very disappointed and very disheartened by the amount of Christians that I saw, especially on social media, who were absolutely devastated. Their lives were destroyed because of the recent election. Which king do you serve? I think we've forgotten what Peter said, that we are exiles from a foreign land, that this world is not our home. And yes, while we want to promote truth and righteousness, we have to preach truth and righteousness to all sides. We are ambassadors for a different king. And if your life is solely living for this world and for this kingdom in the United States of America, can I tell you, your life is going to be a roller coaster every four years. This is never where our hope was supposed to be. And so if your life has been rocked by these results, can I tell you, God is calling you to repent, to no longer conflate the kingdoms of this world and the kings of this world with the king of the world. We are called to follow Christ. But then we see God's unfailing faithfulness. Verse number 18, it says, In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth. And I will make them to lie down safely, and I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which are not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. God has a big picture plan. And this is why I wanted you to keep in mind as I was going through all these things, because, I mean, in reality, they're very condemning. And they're very condemning for me personally. I said this in the last service, too, is... Just a little insight into my mind when I'm uh, preparing for sermons. I usually feel guilty about the things I'm about to preach. <laughs> um, I'm usually guilty of almost every point. So when I'm going through these things and I'm thinking about these things, we have to keep the big picture in mind. When God does this, it's under a, a grand plan of restoration. The idea was to never, was for us just to think, just to feel the condemnation and just to feel guilty about what's happening, but to repent. And to turn back to God and to realize that while this earth might seem dark and this world is obviously cursed by sin, God says as part of his master plan that the very beginning when sin entered this world and destroyed the things we know, destroyed us and really caused all the bad things that we're seeing in this life, that God is in the process of making, thing, or making everything new again, but also better. And if you're one of his children, you're part of that process. He has started restoration in your life. And sometimes that restoration process may seem painful because you enter into periods of chastisement where God is punishing you. It's always done with a heart of love, but also on the grand scale of things, Israel and us, we have the same ending. There's going to be a new kingdom. 
And there's going to be something that's better than what we have here today, which is why I say don't get your hopes so stuck on the things that you see in this world. You can have all the insurance policies you want, but how quickly they go away. This should motivate us, though, to invest in treasures in heaven. Things that won't pass away. Treasures that will never perish. And one of my favorite things I've heard before, too, is we understand that God is actively working in the lives of men. And we have the opportunity to be God's means to get the gospel out to the world. And one of the ways that God's expanding his kingdom and having victory over his enemies is by turning his enemies into his children. Because that's the power of the gospel. And that is something that we can hope in. That is something we know that there is going to be a better ending. And look, some of you might be saying, well, I'm really concerned about what's going on in our country, and I don't know what the future holds. I'm right behind you, and I say, amen, I have no idea what the next two seconds hold, but I know the God of the Bible who knows everything from the beginning to the end. So if we put our faith in him, and we realize where true blessings come from, we can have joy in this journey in spite of the difficulties doesn't mean promised comfort, but it does mean that we can have joy because of who we know and where we're going. But if you're not a Christian today, can I tell you, the Bible also commands you to repent. The Bible says to repent and believe the gospel. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He died on the cross to pay for your sins. And then he rose again three days later, proving that he was victorious over sin and death. But here's the thing. It's not that he, he didn't just sin. He also did everything that God required. So he was harvesting up righteousness in his life. And for those who repent, turn from the love of their sin and turn to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. All the righteousness that Jesus Christ accumulated in his life by fulfilling the law perfectly will be put on your account. And when God the Father sees you, he will no longer see you as a rebellious sinner. He will see you as a child of God. He will see the righteousness that Jesus earned placed onto your account. But if you are a Christian today, I don't know how God spoke to you. Maybe, maybe you're worshiping the blessings over the God who gave you the blessings. Maybe you've been sucked into this cultural Christianity where it's really a religion of convenience, where you've turned church into a social club. But to be honest, the dedication is no longer there. Maybe you felt committed at the beginning, but now it's more about the things that you've won, and you've conflated the God of the Bible, who the true God is, with the God of your mind, because it's just the God you want. It's an idol. It's a false God. Maybe you're going through a time of real darkness right now, and you feel like, hey, Larry, I'm at the bottom of the barrel right now. I know God is judging my life. Can I tell you, God is not judging your life right now because he hates you. He's doing it out of heart of love, because he's not content to see you stay in the sin that you're in. He's trying to get your attention. He's trying to use this for you to turn back to him and realize that I've got nothing else to trust in all these things that were my insurance policies in my life, the things that I know only come from you. I've been trusting in those things, but not you. God is getting your attention. He wants you to repent and trust the source again, to love him for who he is.